you'll please take your Bibles and turn with me to the Matthew passage, Matthew 26. And again, it is a unique Sunday for us as we celebrate Reformation. For some people, this is the highlight of the year, and I'm in my robe, which is not normal. We sing prevalent uh, old hymns, and things happen. Other people just like, well, why don't we have a, a, a time where it's just all new stuff? You got to remember the past in order to, for us to get ready for the future. So it's we do this so that we look back, so that we understand what it is that we have fought for and where we are and where we're going. So again, young people, it's okay. We will get back to more modern stuff, but hold on. There's a purpose for us remembering the Reformation. So again, uh, Matthew 26, and we're going to be studying uh, today about the Lord's Supper. And we're studying about the Lord's Supper because uh, one of the figures in the Reformation was a man named Martin Bucer. Now, Martin Bucer is probably a little known, uh, little known person. Uh, most of you probably have not even heard of Martin Bucer, and it's not Martin Luther. It's Martin Bucer, and Martin Bucer was someone who was contemporary to Luther and Calvin and Zwingli, and he was someone who was changed by the gospel message and uh, came to faith, and he left the Catholic Church and married actually a nun. Uh, had kids and uh, began to um, establish this uh, reformation through the Eastern uh, Europe section. And so what happens is Martin wanted all these uh, different avenues of the reformation that was kind of going out there in different countries to come together. And so Martin uh, Butcher put together in Marsburg in October of 1529, a conglomeration where different people came together. And in it was Luther and Zwingli. Okay, And they had different views on the Lord's Supper. And so what uh, Bucer wanted to do was to get us all on the same page, and it didn't happen. So out of this uh, um, Marsburg collection, uh, they left, uh, united on all fronts except the Lord's Supper. And so we're going to try to unpack that a little bit. Why do we celebrate the Lord's Supper the way that we do? So the first thing we're going to look at is we're going to look at... Um, is it a sacrifice that we do or is it a sacrament? Okay. Now I'm going to be talking about these big names and I want you to kind of just follow along. So if you are someone who's come out of a Catholic faith, okay, or if you are aware of the Catholic beliefs, there's the word called transubstantiation. Now what this means is that uh, in the Catholic church, if you look at old Catholic churches specifically, you would see that what ultimately everything of their architecture leads to is an altar. And on the altar, then the priest would come and you would bring your wafers. And at the moment that the priest said the words, this is my body, then that bread and for the Catholic church becomes the actual body of Jesus Christ. And then the wine actually becomes the blood of Jesus. And so, again, there's a, a change. Even though it still remains bread and wine, it doesn't change. You don't start seeing a finger of Jesus or anything like that. But they truly believe that what is happening at that moment, it has become the actual body and blood of Jesus Christ. It's why they can never throw away wafers. So the priest always has a goblet of leftover wa- wafers from the week before. Okay? It's the, also the reason why they're not allowed to dump out any of the leftover wine in the, in the sink or anything like that. The priest either has to drink it or they have to give it back to nature. There's a process because it is the body and blood of Jesus Christ. Now, we have a problem with that. 
And the reason why we have a problem with that is because the scripture talks about that Jesus was the one perfect sacrifice for one time. When Jesus said, it's finished, it's finished. So we don't have crucifix. Jesus is no longer on the cross. He doesn't have to be re-sacrificed again weekly for your sins. We believe it's one time done. So we don't have a sacrifice. We believe in sacraments. Now, there's many different beliefs if you look at the Protestant church of what they believe about that. The first one we're going to talk about is consubstantiation. Now, this would be the Luther's view. And so what he believes is because there is the omnipresence of God, that there is therefore in the elements an actual representation of Jesus. He said that's in, with, and under the elements. Does it become the actual body and blood of Jesus Christ? No, they don't believe that. But there is something physically that is present in the elements for the Lutheran church. Now we have a problem with that. Now, the reason why we have a problem with that was because in the Council of Chalcedon in 451, we made the statement that there are the two natures of Jesus Christ. He's 100% man and he's 100% God. Those two don't mix. So Jesus is in his new body at the right hand of God. So he can't be there and here. Does everybody get that? He can't be there and he can't be here. So... What happens, and this comes from R.C. Sproul, Christ is truly God and truly man. He's not a divine human hybrid. And he's neither, um, who is neither truly human or truly God. He's both. Now, do we understand that? Can I explain that to you? How God is 100% man and 100% God fully? I can't explain that. Anybody who tells you they can is lying. Okay? But there is the reality that there is no mixture. There's no hybrid Jesus. Okay, so we don't uh, agree with the Luther stance, but then there's also the memorial, and the memorial view is more of Zwingli. Now, again, he says, these next two, say that, hey, there is the distinction. Jesus is in physical form, and he's in his new body, and he's in heaven, and he's reigning now, but there is a sense where there is spiritual things going on. He is 100% God, so he is omnipresent. How that happens, we don't know. But for Zwingli, what it meant was it was more of a divine nature. It's where we come to Christ for strength and communions with other. So for him, he said, hey, Christ is here, but he's mostly for the people. That's where the things happen. So we remember what Christ has done for us in the past. And so we bear witness to the things that have already been accomplished. That Jesus died on the cross, that he was resurrected. But you remember those things. And so for him, that's why we call it a memorial. It's remembering back to the things that Christ has done. So what's different where we celebrate and we call it a spiritual understanding or more along the lines of people like Calvin and others. Why do we have believe that in regards to our sacrament? Because we truly believe that Christ is spiritually present in the Lord's Supper. Because of his omnipresence and because of him being 100% God and 100% man, he is giving to us and feeding us spiritually. And so here's what the Westminster Confession of Faith says. We feed on Christ spiritually, both his humanity and his deity nourish us. So here's what, um, uh, uh, let's see, trying to remember the the pastor that said this. Um, Alistair Begg said this quote. 
The mouth receives the visible signs of bread and wine, but it is the soul that receives by faith the things that are signified and sealed. So we take the elements and we put it in our mouth, but there is something that happens to us because our soul receives by faith the things that are true that it's being signified of. Now, all of that is a background to kind of get to the place of trying to figure out, well, how did they come up with this? Now, what I want you to do is to remember back to the Passover and the Lord's Supper. This is why I struggle with people who say, I'm just a New Testament believer. If you're just a New Testament believer, you don't get the the understanding of the richness of the Old Testament of what things pointed to. And I think this is a great passage where we find that. So the Passover um, begins a part of the sacraments. And these are things that are, one, ordained by God and Jesus Christ himself in the New Testament. They're ordained. These are things that he said, you do this in remembrance. You do this constantly, repeatedly. And so there are ordinations that happen, and those happen for us for only two things, baptism and the Lord's Supper. And in the Lord's Supper, we say that there are outward signs to inward realities. Now, let me give you a little example here. Okay, so what is this that I'm holding up? Okay, it's an Eiffel Tower, right? Is it the Eiffel Tower? Okay, so how many people have been to the Eiffel Tower? You've been to Paris and you've been to the Eiffel Tower. Okay, so for those of us, this is just simply a sign that points us back to the reality of what we saw when we were in Paris. So for me, it gives me a sense and an understanding of, oh, I remember going there. I remember seeing it in the daytime and spending lots of money to go up in it and touch it and go, ooh, Paris. Okay, I remember going there at night and watching it all lit up. And that's pretty cool. And all the French people go out there and they spread their blankets and they drink their wine. And um, you sit there with friends and you go, ooh, and ah, and all that kind of stuff. And so it is neat. So this was actually sold to me by Africans. It's the African refugees that are out there selling these things. It's not the French people. So I bought mine, but it tells me because it represents something to me. Does everybody get that? It represents, and it's also an anticipation, because I was there with friends. So I anticipate someday being back with those friends. And so what we have here is it's the Bible truth that God has given to us, and he gives to us that Bible truth, but the sacraments are the signs that are visible. That's why for us, if you understand the difference, I told you the, the way the architecture is in the Catholic Church, it's the altar that's the center. It's the altar that's above the word. It's the altar that's above everything. If you look at Protestant churches, it's the word that is over top of the table. Huh. So there are, there's a reality that we need to be aware of the things. And again, I know we live in a modern day and some people go, what's the big deal? Who cares? But there is the reality that the word of God has to be above the table that is set. And so we want to make sure that we understand that it's the Bible truths that are seen visibly when we take the sacrament. Now, I want you to understand that part of this comes out of the Passover meal. So if you think back to Exodus 12, where the Exodus, um, where the Passover was established, remember they're leaving, it's the 10th plague. And as they're leaving, I want you to understand there was death in every home. And either it was the death of the firstborn child, the firstborn male, or it was a death of a lamb. But there was death in every home. 
And so what we have to understand that as this exodus was brought about, they said, this is going to be remembered year after year. You're going to start this Passover meal and you're going to remember because God has brought you out of slavery and has taken you to the promised land. So what we have is we have the Lord's Supper coming out of that, but it, there's something very specific about the Passover. Now, by the time Jesus celebrates the Passover meal, okay, there's things that have been added to it. And the first thing I want you to understand being the good Hebrew descendant that I am, I have my Haggadah. And I have my um, things that are here. My, my grandpa, you said, you're, just, you're a handsome Hebrew. So we had to do this growing up. And so we had the Christian side and we had our Jewish side that would mix. So if you come to the Passover celebration and you take the Passover meal, there is something unique that happens at the Passover meal. And it's called the Afikomein. Now, this afikomain was, an, and people don't know where this has come from. So in this bag, there's set three matzahs, three. And in the middle, they take the second piece of matzah. They take it and they break it. And then one piece is set aside in the pouch. And then listen to the wording. It is now hidden and then later to be resurrected in the service now the jewish people don't know where this came from so this would be set aside and then what happens it's like an easter egg hunt for jewish kids okay so the jewish kids after the meal would go out and they would try to find this um off of piece okay and they would get a prize for it after the meal okay so what happens though is that second piece happens after the meal. And for the Jewish people, that celebration of that meal is like for us, it's like our big Thanksgiving meal. It's, it'd be a Christmas meal. It's a big deal. It's supposed to be the best meal of the year. And so what happens is Jesus now takes this afikomain, this piece of the matzah that has been taken. And he said, this is my body. Now again, this is the second piece it's striped. There's no sin for the Jewish people. Again, the leaven would have been representing of sin. There's no sin. And by his stripes, he's healed. By the piercing on these, we're healed. And Jesus says, it he took it, he broke it, and he gave it to the disciples. And he said, this is my body. Now that's significant. Okay? Because it's not just it's not just something we do. They had a purpose, and the purpose was to remember the sacrifice of the Passover land, of which Jesus becomes the perfect sacrifice. And so he's telling them, I want you to remember that I am about to be sacrificed on your behalf. Then he also says something very specific in regards to the cups. And in the Passover meal, there are four cups that are given. And here's what they mean. The first cup that you drink from is, I will take you out. I will take you out of slavery. Then there's the, I will save you. The third cup, which happens after the meal, which is the cup that we believe that Jesus took and said, this is the new covenant of my blood, means I will redeem you. That's the third cup. 
And he said, I will not drink this cup anew with you until I drink it with you in my father's kingdom. The last cup of the Passover meal is I will take you as my people to myself. So Jesus is using all of the symbolism. And so the Jewish people would have been picking up on this of saying, hey, he's saying that that piece, that second piece of the matzah, the one that we're supposed to remember, the Paschal lamb, the perfect sacrifice that was given for us, that's Jesus. And he is coming and he's given us a new covenant in his blood. And the new covenant is he will redeem us. And he does that by going to the cross. And so his Lord's Supper becomes for us, his Passover becomes our Lord's Supper. And in our Lord's Supper, we do a couple of things. The first thing we do is we proclaim the gospel message. That's what he's telling us. Proclaim the gospel message that Jesus, who is the perfect sacrifice, no sin, becomes sin on our behalf. And he is killed for us so that we don't bear the penalty. The second thing is he says, it's a come, come, yes, read it. He says, remember the promises of God. God is a promise keeping God. That's what we hold on to. We don't want a God who changes his mind. Do you? I don't. I don't want a God up there who's just like, you know what, Jeff, you kind of messed up today. So you know what? You're no longer in the uh, book of life. God is unchanging. And when he gives us his promises, they are faithful. And so we remember that as we come to the Lord's Supper. The third thing we do is we participate. We are justified and sanctified in fellowship with the risen Lord Jesus Christ. We get to participate. We get to taste and feel and see the gospel message. But that's where Zingli and his memorial would stop. But what we have is we have anticipation. That's what we're feeding on. That's what encourages us. Jesus is coming back. And he's coming back as the conquering king. And he's going to usher us into the wedding feast. And we're going to get to come and we get to celebrate this meal with Jesus and be in his presence forever. And so that's what it means to us to come to this Lord's Supper. And that's what we're proclaiming. So what does that mean for us? So I want you to turn to the first Corinthians passage because this is a little different take on the Lord's Supper. So what is happening here is you have Jesus giving the institution of words to his disciples before he goes to the crucifixion. What we have with Paul in first Corinthians 11, there's issues going on. The people of God are not taking the Lord's Supper the way it's supposed to. And so there's problems. And so what Paul is coming in is he's coming in and he's trying to fix the issues. And what he does, he brings to our attention a couple things of what it means to have a deeper communion with God. And the first thing he says, savor the new covenant. Savor it. Now I want you to understand that again, I think it's hard for us. Um, I think sometimes this is where uh, maybe the Catholic Church and the uh, Episcopal Church and some other churches that have you come up and actually drink from the same cup. And I know for you germaphobes, some of you freak out at that kind of a thing. But there is a reality that there's something good about that. And here's what I mean. We kind of set you up for shot glasses. Okay? You take the cup, poof, you put it in your mouth, and you're done. I want you to maybe slow down a little bit. Because I want you to savor the reality. He's given to us visible signs. And the idea is for us to savor, to remember 
but also to anticipate the richness and the goodness of what he's done for us. And so take a moment to taste. Don't just, don't just chug it. Don't just get through it. But let it rest on your tongue and on your lips and understand that this represents Christ's blood that he shed for you to take away your sins. Because he says to us, this is the new covenant. And now this comes from Jeremiah 31. And look at the words. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on that day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. And I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. Now I want you to hear all of the promises that he gave to us. So he says, God forgives sins. What an incredible gift. And then he's going to write the law upon our hearts and it becomes a delight, not a duty. And there's a big difference. Think about the times where if you've ever been badgered, especially if you're a kid and you were told, take out the garbage, take out the garbage. Hey, I told you to take out the garbage. At some point in your life, there has to be a switch where you delight in taking out the garbage because you love your mom. You love your parents. It's a delight. And that's what happens to us in regards to the Ten Commandments. There should be a delight in us saying, oh, the law is written upon my heart. And it changes who I am at the very core. We also should know that we will all know God from the least to the greatest. We'll all know him if you're a Christian. And only that, it also says that he will be our all-satisfying God and we will be satisfied as his people. Those are the blessings in regards to the new covenant. And that's what Jesus says when he says, hey, this is what I'm giving to you. And he says, I'm giving to you love, not law. See, the Lord's Supper is a call to love. And the the Corinthians were, were getting it wrong. They were getting drunk at the meal. They were taking advantage of the poor. They were abusing one another. And what Paul's trying to remind us, he says, you've mistaken the meal. The meal is all about love. And the first thing he says is, remember, you love God because he first loved us. This is the example of real love, that Christ died for the unworthy. And as we begin to grasp that, he says, now I want you to have that example and I want you to love others. That's why we partake of this together. We don't do this individually. We partake of it as a body of Christ united because we are united together. We are to love others as you love yourself. That's a hard thing, isn't it? The first part's easy. We love ourselves. That's the easy part. But when you tell someone to love them, just like you love, I want to give people the leftovers. Don't you? If we're honest. Hey, I've got this Xbox and I've got an old PlayStation. What do you think I'm going to give away? The old PlayStation. I'm going to keep the Xbox to myself. God comes and he says, you know what I gave you an example of, Jeff? 
I'd give the Xbox away. Well, Jesus, you're asking for a lot there. And he says, this is love. Now go and do unto others. And especially the poor and the needy. It's not by chance that we give, that we give to the mercy fund on this Sunday. It's our way to remember of giving to those who are less fortunate. We give and we give out of the goodness. And so we love, not because we're required to, but because it's the example that we're given. And only that, he says, that we're to examine ourselves. Now we're supposed to examine ourselves according to the Lord's Supper. Not to each other, that's easy. All of us can go around and you can, you want to look skinny, come stand next to me. Okay? If I want to look holy, I go stand next to Chris. I'm way better than Chris. So we can compare ourselves to each other. That's easy. When we compare ourselves to the supper, we compare ourselves to Jesus Christ. And that's where it gets really hard. Because again, um, if, if people are non-Christians, they don't know any better. They're doing what they're, they're doing. They're living for themselves. But as Christians, I know better. It's why the Apostle Paul started making these statements. He said when he was uh, first um, saved, he said, I'm the least of the apostles. I'm the least of the most important people in the kingdom. But as he went on in his life, he said, well, you know what? I'm not the least of the apostles. I'm really the least of all the saints. I'm the least of the Christians. But after he's gone out, he's been shipwrecked. He's been um, beaten. He's been jailed multiple times. He's been um, gone out there and planted churches and done all these things. At the end of his life, you know what Paul says? He says, I am the worst of sinners. Now, why is that a big deal? Because for us, the reality is, is that we need to understand that Jesus has got to get bigger, not smaller. Jesus has got to get bigger. I Listen, I as a Christian know how I should treat my wife. If, if I see a non-Christian, and uh, again, there's James Mutters in the back. He can tell you all the bad stories about me. He literally grew up with me, and he knows all the dirt. And uh, we were there at the football game at Cocoa Beach this past Friday night. And uh, we were. He, entered, he said, hey, there's one of our old uh, classmates that I truly had not seen for 30 years. And I went down there and started talking to him. And he's still like he was 30 years ago. And I was just like, he doesn't know any difference though. I'm the one who knows difference. And so I'm the one who should treat my wife better than I should. Because I know what the scripture says. I'm the one who should treat my children better. I'm the one who should love my church better. So Jesus has got to get bigger, not smaller. It's a whole thing of, of Aslan. Lucy looks at him, you know, later on in life and she goes, Aslan, you've gotten bigger. And he said, I'm not getting bigger. Just your understanding of who I am is getting bigger. See, Jesus is a great lover of sinners. He loves you for who you are. And I want you to name your sins. Name them. And then repent. And when we repent, then we need to believe the gospel. We need to trust that Jesus forgives. He is the one who looks at you and there's no person in here that has to fix themselves in order to come to the table. You need Jesus. And so it doesn't matter what things you've done. Nothing holds you back. It's all grace. It's all mercy. And Jesus says, come, come to me. You who are burdened, heavy laden, come to me for my burden is light. Ah, just walk and come home. 
But it also means that we're to love one another. This place should be the safest place in all of the county. And it says they will know we are Christians by our love for one another. Which means if there are issues that you have with someone, lay it down. Don't be bickering with one another. If you have an issue, go talk to the person. If you can't talk to the person, then forget it. There's no point in being bitter. That robs you of the joy that Christ gives to you. Because again, as I look to Christ and I see what he's forgiven me of, all your sins look pretty small. So I hold nothing. And Jesus says, come. Come to the table. Come and be fed. Come and believe the gospel. So as we prepare ourselves, I want you to hear this of what it means to walk in love. And I want you to hear these words from Alistair Begg. He said, Christ has provided cleansing and forgiveness. And when Satan tempts you to despair, you tell him that Jesus did on the cross and that you're trusting in that. And in your present, when you take these symbols, remember that Jesus grants to you fellowship and strength. And when you think about the future, remember that he promises to you assurance and joy. Amen? Come to the table. Come to deep communion and savor the truth of the gospel message this morning. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, again, as we come to your table, we know it's because of your invitation and your invitation alone. Lord, we recognize that no one deserves to come to this table except through Jesus Christ. His shedding of his uh, blood upon our sins, the giving of his perfect body as a sacrifice to ransom us from the depths of hell itself. But Lord, not only that, he gives to us his righteousness so that we might be considered sons and daughters of the King. Lord, what an incredible message. One we proclaim, commemorate, participate in. But Lord, we anticipate for you coming home. Coming back and bringing the new heavens and the new earth. Where we will be in your presence forevermore. Loved and perfect. No more tears. No more pain. No more sorrow. Lord, this we look to. And this we claim because you promised it through your word. And Lord, now as we come and partake, may it change us, truly change us, to strengthen us and nourish us. And Lord, to go deeper in our communion with you. Lord, to love people more dearly and more deeply and love you more than anything in the world. For this we pray in Christ's name and all God's people said, amen.